1: All right, it is five days and counting to Valentine's Day crunch time for gift givers. Coming up, we have Chris McMahon. He is the president and CEO of 1-800-Flowers.com. That is a NASDAQ-listed stock, uh, uh, FLWS. I'm looking at the stock here, up 121% on a trailing 12-month basis. So uh, the business of selling flowers and gifts seems to be in good shape. Let's check in with Chris. Chris, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, five days and counting to Valentine's Day. Talk to us about your business and Valentine's Day. How big is that?
3: Sure. Valentine's Day is a very important part of our business, and I appreciate you asking and having me on the show this time of year. It's, uh, it's actually our third busiest holiday because of our expansion into the gourmet food category with brands like Harry and David or our most recent acquisition into personalized products with personalizationmall.com. Uh, The flower brand, which is all about Valentine's Day, this really makes, you know, the other brands make the holiday season the busiest season for us, Mother's Day second, Valentine's third. But more importantly, this is so important for our customers, and it's so important for them at this point in time to really reach out and express themselves to each other.
2: So tell us what kinds of flowers people tend to ask for. Is it all roses around this time of year?
3: Well, Vani, of course it is. We will sell about 22 million stems this year of flowers. 14 million of those will be roses. Now, wow. there will be roses of all different colors, but when you really want to say, I love you and really express yourself, nothing does it like roses.
2: Well, just on that, I need to know, what I mean, is it all red flowers? And how do you, how do you tailor, you know, if you think demand is going to be like mostly red flowers, how do you tailor your orders for that?
3: Uh, we look all the time. We, we're constantly doing data analytics to understand what consumer trends are, what we sold last year, working with our growers to make sure we have the supply. And besides red, which is a core staple, we're seeing lots of pinks and pastel-colored roses. Uh, so, so it runs the gamut. And people looking for something, yellow roses are very common because they really express friendship at this time of year. And the Valentine's Day, it's not always about love. It's just recognizing the people who are important in our lives.
1: Chris, talk to us about your business and the pandemic. So many businesses we've seen have been really really disrupted and upended. Um, tell us about how the gift-giving business has kind of, you know, reacted to the world we're living in now.
3: Yes, Paul. I think, you know, as we look at how we reacted to the pandemic when it first hit, no one knew what was exactly what was going to happen. But we saw early on from our customers that they recognized the need to maintain relationships, to build, reach out and connect to the important people in their lives. And as a company whose vision is to inspire human expression, connection, and celebration, we were so well positioned for that. So while many businesses have been really dramatically hampered by this pandemic, it's been a pivotal, pivotal moment for our company as we've embraced and leaned into the sentiments of the consumer, the shift from offline sales to online sales that we're so well positioned for, the trend of nesting where we see companies like Personalization Mall just doing really, really well. So for us, we were accelerating our revenue for the past couple of years. It's accelerated more now as we've gone into the pandemic, and we're just so honoured that customers turn to us to help us to help to help them express and connect with the important people in their lives.
2: Sure. Did your growers have trouble getting enough people to pick their flowers? Uh, there, were there any kind of bottlenecks like that?
3: I think in the overall retail and supply chains, we've all had our challenges, but luckily we've been able to work together in partnership and really overcome those challenges, whether it's working with the growers here in the United States or in other parts of the world where some of our product comes from. So we've been able to, through collaborative partnership, we've been able to overcome many of those challenges and not really be be uh, disrupted in the industry.
1: So 1-800-Flowers.com, that brand has been around uh, forever, Chris, but you guys have also really diversified into Simply Chocolate, Sherry's Berries, the Popcorn Factory. What's the next avenue of growth for your company?
3: Well, again, I think, Paul, as we look to say, what we're really about, people look at this as a gifting company, but what we're really about is a company to help you express and connect and to celebrate. So our most recent acquisition that we did in the midst of this pandemic, believe it or not, was uh, our largest acquisition ever of Personalization Mall. Uh, and that's brought us into a whole new product category. That's a trend we saw developing. People looking to personalize everything with the, you know, being able to put their photographs on things, personalize the message, etc. So we're Will be continuing to grow into that category, and then just looking for what else helps you to say something to someone who's important to you, uh, whether it be something for free, whether it be something that costs five dollars, like a Cheryl's cookie cards, where you could send a personalized uh, box with a single cookie in it, just to say I'm thinking of you. So our mission, our vision is to just keep people connected and find more and more ways to make that easy for them.
2: So many things on the personalization mall that I have ideas for. Chris, I'll be in touch. Thank you so much. That is Chris McCann. And of course, if you are ordering flowers or something more personalized for any of your loved ones, do call 1-800-Flowers before Valentine's Day. Well, we have a Secretary of State now. His name is Anthony Blinken and one of the first things that he is doing is trying to end the war in Yemen. He says it's priority and that the humanitarian crisis is no longer just palatable, which it hasn't been for a long, long time. So the U.S. planning to revoke terrorist designations on Yemen's Houthi rebels. Let's bring in somebody who knows a lot more about this and about what Biden's foreign policy is likely to look like more broadly. Ariel Cohen is Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council and Founding Principal of International National Market Analysis, Ariel. Thank you so much for joining. Obviously, Blinken feels very strongly about Yemen, which is great because it's been ignored for many, many, many months. What happens here? Does he be? Is he successful in trying to end Yemen's war, or is this a case of the US getting involved where it shouldn't?
4: Uh, the Yemen war is a humanitarian disaster. Uh, what is important to remember is that uh, Iran is projecting power to Yemen uh, and mobilizing, arming, training, equipping uh, the Houthi rebels. And these are pretty, um, uh, pretty underdeveloped uh, folks uh, in the Yemen uh, who never ever had their own missiles. So now the Houthis are shooting the Iranian missiles into Saudi Arabia, and whether you like them or don't like them, there's a lot of things we dislike about Saudi. They're our allies, and they've been our allies since 1945 when uh, President Roosevelt and the founding king of Saudi Arabia, um, bin Abdelaziz, uh, Abdelaziz, uh, agreed on a strategic partnership. Mm. So to just um, say we're going to stop the war in Yemen is great, but you need a commitment from the Houthis to stop firing missiles at the Saudis, uh, to stop attacking their um, uh, oil fields, and from the Iranians who supposedly want to join, rejoin the uh, nuclear agreement, JCPOA, with the United States and the others, to commit to pull out of Yemen and stop supporting the Houthis. If these elements are in uh, kudos to the State Department, to Tony Blinken, to President Biden for resolving a bloody and horrible conflict in the Yemen.
1: All right, Ariel, let's broaden the foreign policy out a little bit here under the Biden administration um, here. The Biden administration, the president said he wants to re-engage in global diplomacy after four years of President Trump's uh, America First agenda. How Do you believe America will be embraced by the world once again as a leading voice in global diplomacy, or does it have to work to get that trust back?
4: Well, first of all, we should remember that Trump came as a symptom uh, of uh, the fatigue a lot of folks in this country have with uh, long wars, commitments, and Iraq and Afghanistan that were going on for 20 years. Families lost their dear ones. It cost us probably a trillion dollars to be engaged there. So there was a reaction. It didn't happen in an empty space just because Donald Trump had very poor, poorly thought through ideas about the world, which he did. He did. He's a nationalist, he's an isolationist. Doesn't work like that in the 21st century. However, the rise of China and uh, the wariness of our European allies to work with us standing up to Putin in Russia, standing up to Xi Jinping in China. You see what the Europeans just did? Just before Biden was inaugurated, uh, they signed a huge uh, investment and trade agreement with Europe and the Chinese rushed and signed a similar agreement in Asia. So this is not Barack Obama's world. This is not the world where President, uh, then Vice President Biden was hugged by everybody. We have more challenges, bigger challenges, and we need to have, among other things, money uh, to confront the rising China and other things. And instead, what I see is um, a commitment, uh, almost an hysterical commitment to spend more and more money on uh, things that are not directly applicable to this conflict with China and to boosting American engagement and presence around the world. Money is fungible if we spend all this money on, let's say, the COVID package or the environmental policies, which are necessary as well. Clearly, they're necessary. But we need to keep the whole picture um, in mind and see the huge challenges in front of us in terms of international engagement, in terms of how we bring back the allies in Asia, India, Japan, the Philippines Vietnam, and in Europe. Yes,
2: we only have a minute left. How will Biden approach China relations are not good between the U S and China right now?
4: Well, this is a part of a huge systemic challenge to the United States. China is a rising power. China thinks that they're going to become the greatest economic power on the planet in this decade before 2030. And, uh, Xi Jinping, the Chinese leader, is more authoritarian, more dictatorial than anybody since Mao Zedong, and he compares himself to Mao, he wants to bring Taiwan back by hook or by crook, either politically or militarily. This is a huge challenge for President Biden.
1: Dr. Ariel Cohen, thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Ariel Cohen, he's a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, also a founding principal of International Market Analysis based in Washington, D.C.
0: OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at bloomberg.com/techsf.
2: Let's get to our next guest who is Austin Carr. He's written a great story about Apple being the 2.3 trillion dollar fortress that Tim Cook built. We know that we have a meeting of business leaders with Joe Biden today. One of them won't be Tim Cook, not this time around, but he did have a meeting with Joe Biden back in 2012, and that's where Austin's story starts out. So, Austin, tell us what the sort of the the drift of your story is, if you like. What is it about Cook and Apple that administrations really want to talk to?
5: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we wanted to focus on with this story was, was Tim Cook's diplomacy skills. Um, so much attention when it comes to Apple is often centered on their uh, products and their design approach. But one of the things that Tim has been incredibly Uh, uh, adept at is uh, deflecting political pressure. Um, The opening scene, as you just mentioned, of the story is actually a a look back at a 2012 dinner between uh, Joe Biden when he was vice president and Tim Cook, when he was really pressuring uh, Apple to make the iPhone in the U.S., um, which for a lot of folks might just sound a little bit like deja vu, because he went through that with four years in the Obama administration, or eight years, I should say, another four years with the Trump administration. And just recently, Biden has been talking yet again about trying to move U.S. manufacturing back to the U.S., and what administrations seem to be uh, in love with the Apple, uh, with Apple about, and and Tim more specifically, is just the Apple brand. Um, they they see it as an engine of American innovation, a job creator, and they want to attach themselves to that. And that's one of the things that we uh, sort of dove into during the the, uh, the the Obama era as well as the Trump era. Just how Tim Cook navigated that, leaned on uh, his sort of diplomacy skills as well as trading optics to get his way when it came to navigating washington DC
1: so it's it's interesting I mean Tim Cook I'm just looking at the you know the chart the 10-year chart since you know the end of the fiscal uh, the financial crisis 2009 2010 the stock's just been extraordinary in terms of returns and outperforming the market here. Tim Cook, I mean, he, he's navigated so many landmines. You mentioned, you know, a, a number of them. But I, you know, one of the big issues is the regulatory risk here. What's the concern here within the company um, about regulatory risk from the United States? Is that a potential big risk for this company?
5: I mean, I think definitely so. I mean, if you look at the October uh, House uh, uh, antitrust subcommittee, you know, they they cited Apple along with Facebook, Amazon uh, and Google as having monopoly power and regulating regulars uh, step in when it comes to their app store. Um, just because of the, the dominance of the platform on uh, when it comes to mobile software and the sort of control it has over software makers. Um, at the same time, if you sort of zoom out, I would say Apple has been less scrutinized versus the uh, other companies out there like Google and Facebook, especially if you saw the testimony um, some months back. Uh, a lot of the, the ire from, from Congress was focused on Mark Zuckerberg or uh, Sundar Pichai rather than Tim Cook. And I think one of that, reasons is just the narrative he's able to build. Um, He's been very public and very vocal in sort of not being on the defensive, but actually attacking. Um, He's most recently been counterpunching and saying, uh, you know, just just in in recent weeks that, uh, you know, the government should be focused on reforming social media companies because of their data exploitation, that that's a larger issue than perhaps Apple might be with its app store. Um, And they're very just clever, again, about deflecting those politics and winning that public messaging war, essentially using the Apple marketing that's so famous, but for political issues.
2: Exactly deflecting. Well, once, I mean, obviously the social media companies are in for a few months of, of, of toughness, I would imagine, both here and in Europe. But once that's over, and sort of the, the way will be free for regulators here and in Europe to to go after Apple in a big way on everything from taxes to App Store to how it treats its customers and and competition and so on. What are they most vulnerable in?
5: Well, I mean, I think that remains to be seen just because we, you know, especially in the U.S., we haven't really gotten a clearer picture of how much the Biden administration is going to press this issue. He's spoken most vocally about uh, Section 230, which is an issue that would affect Facebook and Google more than it did Apple. But if you look at um, the Trump era uh, for just lessons, um, I mean, just just consider how, how uniquely vulnerable Apple was during that timeframe, considering how reliant its supply chain was on China and how much the Trump administration was going after uh, uh, that that dynamic through trade war pressure, tariff threats, uh, and so forth, that uh, some analysts really thought would blow up the company's supply chain and and really force them to have to find new geographies to manufacture things, which it could not have done overnight, especially amid the COVID-19 pandemic. yet Apple did better than ever. I mean, this market cap soared. It just past $2 trillion, and that's just a testament to both the operational scale as well as the political maneuvering, again, that Tim Cook did personally with Trump, who was, uh, according to officials, you know, constantly meeting in Washington with Trump, uh, was willing to do these big events uh, with him, whether that's CEO Summers Summit's dinners at the White House or visits to a factory in Texas, which was sort of an infamous scene uh, in the story, uh, to really just avoid the harshest penalties of what could have been a disastrous four years uh, under Trump.
1: Austin, thank you so much for this, uh, this story. It's just a fascinating story. Uh, Austin Carr, Bloomberg technology reporter, his story, Bloomberg Businessweek magazine. Apple is a $2.3 trillion fortress that Tim Cook built.
0: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.
1: It is time for Bloomberg Opinion today. We're joined by Timothy O'Brien, senior columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, coming to us from the foodie capital of Montclair, New Jersey. Tim, we've got the impeachment trial kicking off today. By all accounts, a conviction is highly unlikely What would constitute a win or a good showing on the part of the democrats
6: well i think i think there's still a lot that voters and citizens don't know about what occurred on january 6th in terms of who planned the event prior to it occurring who coordinated what occurred there did the white house know how much did trump know what did what did his campaign know Uh, it would be a useful exercise if this trial got at that because it's vitally important for the law and and I think the historical record. But political concerns are driving this one, obviously. And I I don't know, you know, there's a lot of debate on that very issue within the Democratic Party itself. There's some folks pushing for a speedy trial and there's others asking for a more deliberative process that airs everything. Um, I think the White House seems to prefer a speedy trial as well. But again, these are political issues that are driving that debate, not not the legal values, I think.
2: For sure. Tim, if there are no witnesses allowed, how would we find out some details of the type that you just enunciated?
6: I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I, I frankly don't know. I don't know why witnesses aren't being subpoenaed and, and uh, uh, required to testify under oath, including uh, Donald Trump. I don't know why there isn't a more aggressive effort to collect that kind of evidence. I should say I do know, but I think it's, it's, it, it amounts to a travesty that I think historically people will look back on this and, and see it as, as Democrats once again caving to more savvy and street smart Republicans who, who know how to muscle procedure along um, at the expense, I think, of better outcomes.
1: Tim, what role, if any, is the White House playing in this process?
6: Well, well, certainly Biden has sat back and has not had any comments about it. But, but behind the scenes, um, there certainly has been a lot of indications that uh, the White House would prefer that, that the trial is expeditious and that it, it, it doesn't uh, gum up the machinery. And I think their concerns are... Uh, it, it, it could derail Biden's ability to get um, more COVID-19 legislation passed. It would uh, hinder his ability to form his cabinet. Um, it's not clear to me that that's actually the case, but there's a there's a concern about that in the White House.
2: Will Trump's defense be able to, you know, put forward a case that will will defeat the case of all of the managers? So there's what two, four, six, eight, nine managers from Jamie Raskin to Madeline Dean, and surely they'll have, you know, a good case. Will will the defense be able to uh, to knock that case down? Well, I think you know. An
6: acquittal is pretty baked in here now, Vani. The Democrats would need 67 votes uh, finding Trump guilty. uh, And I don't think there's any possibility they're going to get there. It looks now like um, Republicans are going to, you know, march in lockstep on this one. So uh, unfortunately, it looks like whether or not Trump's defense mounts a good case may be irrelevant to the outcome. But in terms of their raw argument, uh, it is it is, is a pretty ridiculous one. It's, it's founded on two things, that a president can't be impeached. And I'm sorry, a former president can't be impeached, even though Trump was president at the time he was impeached, uh, which makes that claim, I think, irrelevant. And that Trump was merely exercising his free speech rights when he uh, told marchers in Washington that he would lead them down Pennsylvania Avenue and they needed to fight to make sure their country wasn't taken away from them. Um, free spe- We all are protected by free speech, but no one's allowed to go into a movie theater and scream fire. Uh, so I think on legal grounds, both of those issues aren't very strong,
1: uh, but they had to say something because Trump is getting tried. Tim, do we know for a fact that no witnesses will be called?
6: You know, we won't know, Paul. That's a great question. It appears that that's not going to be the case. Uh, but but uh, the procedures around this have been very murky up until the very moment that we're speaking right now. We may see when this launches this afternoon that they will begin calling witnesses. Um, you know, Lindsey Graham was on Fox saying that if the Democrats call witnesses, he he's going to make sure that this, the Republicans call lots of witnesses too. I think the threat there is that he would... Mm. Try, that that would then amount to slowing the whole thing down um, but all indications are that witnesses aren't going to be called
2: We know that there's going to be a sort of a four hour initial proceeding on the constitutionality of the whole thing and then sort of 16 hours for both sides to present cases and so on Will this be wrapped up extraordinarily fast do you think Tim? Will we, will we know most of what we're going to find out by Friday even?
6: That's possible. I think it really depends on how it, 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 it moves procedurally, Vonnie, and it, it could be wrapped up in a few days. Uh, I think it'll be unfortunate if that's the case from a legal standpoint. But again I, again, I think some of the political realities around there mean that may happen.
1: So, Tim, outside of these impeachment process, uh, you, you, you've been following the, the President Trump for, for decades here. What is his greatest legal risk outside of these impeachment processes?
6: Um, You know, there are tax and financial fraud investigations afoot in the state of New York. One is with the uh, New York State Attorney General. That's a civil case. Uh, I think the more threatening case to him is with the Manhattan District Attorney, which is a criminal case, and it would bring criminal uh, charges and and penalties if it it goes all the way to the finish line. And, And that involves uh, again, possible tax fraud, accounting fraud, financial fraud, campaign finance fraud. And I think that's very fun of mine for Trump. I think it's one of the reasons, I think the legal perils that were facing him w- w- was a very significant reason for him fearing losing the insulation of the, of the Oval Office when he lost the election.
2: Yeah, it's fascinating. Final question, Tim. What about the rest of his family? Are they, once this is over, open to some kind of action as well?
6: Well, the... Um, the children are all part of the business, and they're involved in those. They're, they're, it's likely they may be swept in, in into some of the problems their father faces in New York. Um, the consequences may not be as grave, but they're they're on that same radar screen.
2: And of course, uh, one final thing, Tim. We don't know if there were pocket pardons, do we?
6: We do not know that. That's a good question, Bonnie. Yeah. We do not know that.
2: Well, we shall find out. It all comes to the surface eventually. Tim O'Brien, thank you so much for joining. Tim, of course, always with some uh, wonderful columns on Bloomberg Opinion and things that you may not have thought of and some things examined that you did think of and a full gamut. Tim O'Brien there of Bloomberg Opinion.